0: As we continue our study in Hebrews, we'll be in chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read together beginning in verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. And so let's read that together, Hebrews chapter 6 and beginning in verse 9 all the way through verse 20. "'But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards His name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister.' And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it in an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. At the very heart of the letter to the Hebrews is this truth— that for the readers, Jesus was for them a great high priest. And that's true for us as well as we're going to continue to learn in chapter 7 the importance of understanding what it means for Jesus to represent us to God and to make atonement on, on our behalf for sin. But we're in this section here where we're introduced to Jesus as the high priest, and we learn that a high priest in chapter 4 is taken from the people to represent his people to God. A priest offers sacrifices for sins on behalf of the people. A priest can have compassion on his people because he's one of the people. And we see that Jesus, in the same way, although not of the tribe of Levi, not a son of Abraham, he was of the tribe of Judah, we know that he, though, was like a high priest in all of these ways. He could have compassion on His people because He became one of us. He offered sins, on behalf, a sacrifice once and for all for, for His people and for all who would believe. He represents us to the Father and invites us all into the throne room of the Father. He made atonement for our sins once and for all to, to all who believe. And so when we go on to these next verses after tonight, we're going to continue to talk about what it means for Jesus to be this high priest for us. But in chapter 6, we have a few other things that it's important for us to think about. And so he, he takes chapter 6 and a little bit of the previous, and he, it's sort of like a parenthesis where he's going to address some things that just very important to say uh, and for us to take note of. And that's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, and we're going to complete that, Lord willing, tonight. He addressed at the early part of this chapter spiritual infancy, as you might remember. Some he was concerned about, instead of growing and maturing and watching them uh, do the things that he might expect them to do in Christ, they were still like babies in some ways. And so he points that out and he challenges them to grow and to mature, not just consist on milk, not regress, but to grow and thrive in in their faith he talked we talked about uh, the idea of falling away and the concern about what it would mean to not be in Christ and of course uh, that would that would lead to, to destruction but this section is very very encouraging and uh, we're going to look at it in two ways and so we're going to take the first few verses and, and we'll just we'll just pick up on the two words better things better things that we see in verse number 9 the author of hebrews is convinced he's confident of of good things, of better things for the people uh, he's addressing. And then for the second part, we'll look at steadfast things, steadfast things. And really it says immutable things. In verse 18 and in verse 17, it talks about immutable things, which just simply mean that they're unchanging. And so the writer of Hebrews is confident of better things for them, but he wants to point out the immutable things about God the things that are unchanging and secure, just like we sang about in the first two songs this evening. So let's first look at better things. In light of his concern earlier in the chapter, and we talked about this last week, and in, in light of that, the, the, those verses that give us a warning, he says, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. And do you notice what he says about them? He says that they're beloved he uses this word. The, this is the only time in the book of Hebrews, and we, we, we get very quickly this idea that he really loves the people he's writing to, and he's being very tender hearted. The tone is changing. If you're narrating this, it, it, there's, a, there's a change of what he's trying to communicate. And he says, Loved ones, I, I am confident, we are confident that as you go through your Christian life, it's going to lead to better things, better things than those who could fall away or would fall away. We feel like you're going to grow. We're excited about that. We're confident of these things, and the tone is very gentle. In other words, words he's saying to them, you're not a lost cause. As we think about the parable of the two sons, that Jesus told about the, 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 the father who had two sons, and, and one of the sons took his inheritance and just basically did the equivalent of saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. You're not dead, but give me my inheritance anyways. And then he takes it and leaves, never to return. But he comes to himself, and he repents, and he comes back to the father, and the father embraces him you don't give up. He never gave up on his prodigal son. It seems like he was always there, sort of waiting. Perhaps he'll come and return. And the father didn't give up on the elder brother either. The other bro- elder brother had problems as well, if you recall. The elder brother represents the Pharisee, and the younger brother represents the prodigal. And so uh, there was love of the father there, and there's a, a real uh, emphasis here that the writer of Hebrews is convinced of better things for them. And then, lest the apparent failure of some, perhaps who didn't grow, perhaps never knew Christ, should sort of overwhelm the, the majority who, who may be following the Lord. Sometimes the people who aren't doing right get all of our attention and, and, and occupy all of our thoughts. Uh, he, he is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Has anyone ever thrown out the baby with the bathwater I was thinking about that today. I don't, I've never heard of anyone actually doing that. But lest you do throw the baby out with the bathwater, he was sure and confident that to the, to the people he's writing to, that they would continue. And that's just an encouraging place, to, place uh, to, to say that. Well, why is he convinced of better things for them? Well, first of all, God is not forgetful. God is not forgetful. And he says that in verse number 10, that God is not unrighteous or unjust, to forget. Forget your work, to forget what you've done in love, to forget what you've done in love in His name, and what you've done in terms of ministering to the children of God, and the people of God, and not only what you have done, but what you are continuing to do. And so, as He encourages, and as He sort of steps on some toes, and as He's challenging him to grow up, He says, you have done some things that are God won't forget those, and you're continuing to minister, and there are some evidences in your life that are very encouraging and give some sort of indication that you do love the Lord and you know the Lord, and that's really remarkable. But he points out, first of all, that he's convinced of better things for them, not only in that they're doing good things, but that in God, God himself won't forget. People forget, don't we? We sometimes make promises to ourselves and we let ourselves down. Has any of you ever done that? And you kick yourself and you... yourself in the head and you do all sorts of things and you're like why why did i do that and we do that with one another as well we have a bible illustration of this early on in genesis we have joseph and he's going through all these things in his life and finally he interprets a dream he's in prison for a butler and a baker and he says hey here's the dream and it's not so good for the baker but for the butler he says you're going to return back and in service of the pharaoh and just if you would do me one favor remember me right sure i'll remember you joseph he gets out of jail and he forgets Joseph ever existed. He's happy. He's set up on his way. And he just forgets all about Joseph. They're in prison with no voice. Of course, God works through that, but people forget. They say it's much, much easier. It's almost like it's built into our nature to remember when we've been slighted and never forget that. And it's so easy to forget when we've been treated well, when, we've, when someone's done something for us. Well, we never forget when that guy cheated us, right? Sold us a car that he said ran well, and it, you know, he put sawdust in the, in the motor. Um, we, 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 we can remember oftentimes the, the bad things and uh, get things sort of skewed in our mind to the point that sometimes it's when we're on our deathbed or someone we care about is on their deathbed that sometimes we realize how we should put all of this into perspective. I wonder if we found out we have 48 hours to live, 72 hours to live, and somehow we knew that. I wonder what we would do with those 72 hours. But I'm sure it would be getting closure on some of these things, remembering people in our life we want to make sure we say thank you to or we appreciate her. Just taking the time to refl- reflect on those those memories. Why? Because life gets busy. At least for someone like me, it just seems like the days go by quickly, and the kids are growing, and there's stuff going on all the time, and it's just very easy to forget uh, what's what's going on in our, what's going on in our lives. I remember listening to an audio book. You know, it's a, a book, but someone re- reads it out to you, and. And uh I was reading this book, and, and there was a poem that was read that I haven't forgotten, I actually found it on the internet, and um, I actually have it in my Bible, but I won't torture you tonight, and I won't read it to you, uh, but it's called "Father Forgets." And the uh, reader of the of the audiobook had a voice sort of like Paul Harvey, and I could still hear it in my in my head, but it was about this father who, at the very end of the day, had uh just paused in the in the darkness to realize. Uh, his interactions with his his son, his little boy, how he treated him when he got home from work, and how he treated them when they were talking about their homework, and how he treated them when they when he was playing out in the yard and and at the very end of the day, he said, "You know what, son, Father forgets what it 's like to be a little boy i 'm so busy with my life and all these things going on that I just forgot what it was like to be a little boy, and the poem sort of says. I'm not going to explain it to you because you won't understand. I'm looking at you sleeping, um, but I'll do better. I'll do better tomorrow. We forget. We forget. God doesn't forget. He knows the story of your life and His expectations of you, His insight into how you are and what you do and how you think is perfect. He knows you better than you know yourself David said it this way, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. He knows who you are. This isn't an excuse to sin, but what it is, is it's, it's a reminder that God knows us, he delights in our salvation, he's made provision for that salvation in Jesus, and we may forget all sorts of things, but God is not unjust. He's not unrighteous to forget, and the writer has more confidence in God's righteousness in terms of how he is aware of what's going on in our lives as his people than he would even have in the Christians themselves. God doesn't forget. So, God is not forgetful, but they were not unfruitful. So, God wasn't unforget, was not forgetful, but they were not unfruitful because what God was going to never forget and what God understood was their work and their labor of love towards His name. In verse 10, it says that uh, you have showed this toward His name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. There was genuine evidence in their life, I'm sure for a Jewish Christian in particular, at this time, when this letter is being written, it would have been very, very challenging in a, in a way that I don't think I can relate to what it would mean to identify as a Christian, to get baptized as a Christian, to go to church and sing songs like we sang tonight as a Christian could have been very, very difficult. It, might, it would have mean, meant, meant a rejection from a lot of the community around you and maybe some family and friends and, and just all that would go along with it. But he says there's something genuine about the way you've lived out that life. And this isn't the only place that says that how we, how we, how we love others reflects whether or not our love for God is genuine. We could say it this way. We know that the, God, the love of God is in us in that we love our brethren. In fact, that's what John says, isn't it? In First John chapter 4 and verse 20, If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Of course, the commandment that we have is that, we, that, that whoso loveth God loveth his brother also. Jesus will say to his disciples in John 13, he'll say this, This will be all, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And I think we do lose sight of that sometimes. We lose sight of that. How we love God is going to have a real effect on how we think about the person sitting next to us or, or down the road from us. And in particular, even in the Christian community. And I appreciate the love of God. I appreciate brothers and sisters in Jesus who love me. And I can love them and we can be there for one another. That's just such a powerful, powerful thing uh, that God uses in, in, in any community. And having found that, that's something to appreciate. So he knows God is not forgetful, and they were not unfruitful. Uh, he, he knows that there's real evidence that they have ministered and they've served, and he doesn't describe what that all looks like, we can imagine, uh, but they, they, that was genuine in their life. And then thirdly, their perseverance would be rewarded. In verse 11, he says, uh, we desire, we have set our heart upon this one thing we really desire, that every one of you do show the same diligence we want each of you we very important our goal is that each of you will show diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end in other words we want all of you to not only be diligent in the terms of hey i'm going to work really hard today and work hard tomorrow and work hard the next day but i want you to do so in connection with an incredible hope that you have about what God is doing in your life and what that inheritance will look like. God can be trusted. His promises can be trusted. And if you are fully convinced of that, if that is fully in your heart, that's an incredible, energizing thing for you that will help you to go through all these other things that may, uh, may, and you may encounter in the Christian life. And so he says, I want you to have this hope. I want to cultivate this hope. And I want you to have this, this, this hope blazing in your heart. And hope, by the way, isn't, isn't a kind of a wishful thinking in the Bible, it's very different than that, it's a confidence. A very strong confidence that what I can imagine in the future, what I know about the future based off of God's Word, is a reality, it's real, it's just not yet. I don't see it yet, but I can trust God, I can trust His character, and so that I know that it will happen. And by the way, faith will be defined and talked about more and more as we go through Hebrews, as we, and if you have questions about faith, which I think we all do, and what it means to trust God, and what it means to walk in faith, Well, as we continue through these next chapters, it's going to be very good uh, to, to be thinking about all of that. But he says, I want you to have a full assurance of hope until when? Until the end. I want you to be diligent. I want you to be full of hope all the way until the end. All the way through your Christian journey, whatever that looks like. I want you to be faithful and diligent until the end. In verse 12, he says, I want you to follow others who have, done this, who have lived out their lives in faith. He says, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, it's possible for us to become slothful. It's possible for us to get lazy. It's possible for us to become at a loss for hope. He talks about three things in particular that he pulls out when, when he talks about following them. He says, I want you to follow people, but whoever you to follow, notice he says, first of all, it's those who through faith and patience, faith and patience. Faith is trust in the character and provision of God. I don't know what the future will hold. I don't have a lot of faith, not in this type of way, in our government or in politicians or in people in general, Right? But I can have faith that God is in control, that his character is good, and so the things that he said, and the decisions he'll make, and the way he'll lead and operate the the world, I can trust that, and so I can walk in faith. And so that relates to God's character as a whole, and then in particular, in the provision of Jesus Christ. And so there are others who've gone on before us, and in fact, over the last 2,000 years, and then go to Hebrews, there are those who've come before, these who are reading it as it's being written and read. And he says, Look to them. They have journeyed as well in faith. But not only faith, they have done it through faith and patience. So, patience is the exercise of faith along the course of your life. So, it's one thing to to say you have faith in God and to sort of understand that God can be trusted, but there is going to be a variety of ways in which you're going to have to exercise that faith. The Bible says, at least in two places, the just shall live by faith. So, we, we become children of God by grace through faith, and we, we live by faith, and we're called to do that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews will say a little later uh, in the letter. And so, uh, Patience is this idea that there's always a risk of getting tired. There's always a risk of, of, uh, of growing slothful. There's a risk that we're, you know, we're going to face difficulties and challenges that can trip us up, and we need to run with patience. I don't know if you've read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. The original version of it is hard to read. I'm not sure that the cleaned up, updated version is all that much easier to read, um, Everyone gets a funny name in the Pilgrim's Progress, but it's written by a Baptist pastor in the 1600s in England, and he was put into prison for his faith, and while he was in prison, he had the opportunity in some ways, like the Apostle Paul, but to write uh, write a couple books, and one of those was the Pilgrim's Progress about a Christian, and in fact, the name of the Christian's name, his name was Christian, and his wife's name was Christiana, I think, and you get the idea there. But in the journey of his Christian life and journey, and, you know, it's, he's, he's walking and journeying with friends, and he's facing obstacles and challenges and, and all of these things, but he's with his friend, Hopeful, and you get the understanding by now that the names have some significance, right? So you have Christian, and you have his friend, Hopeful, and they, uh, I, I believe the setting of this is they, they get, they, they think it's a shortcut to go through bypass meadow. I think that was the name of it. And so they say, you know what, that journey looks uphill, and it looks really rocky, and there's this nice meadow. I think we're, we're going to go this way. And as they, they go through the meadow, they find out that it's not what they expected it to be. It, it, it turns dark, and they, and they get lost, and they, they're so tired, and they just fall asleep, weary, hungry, and cold. And uh, as they, they, they get rudely woken up, Christian and hopeful, by a giant, giant's name is Despair. And so, Giant Despair grabs him and he throws him up into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. So, you have this all in your head, right? Christian and Hopeful are now captured by the Giant uh, Despair, and he's a lot bigger and stronger than they are, so he throws them and locks them into uh, Doubting Castle. And, and they're there for several days, not given anything to eat, not anything to drink, and they're just in their misery, just ready to give up on life and, and die. And, and Uh, they finally get together and pray. The giant has a wife, his his wife has a name too, but I don't know if she's relevant. Uh, I don't remember what her name is. Um, But, um, so they're in this this dungeon, they're just getting weaker and weaker by the day, and they decide to pray, and they're praying all, all night long, and in the morning, in the morning, Christian realizes that in his heart, close to his heart, in his bosom, he has the key called promise key called promise. And he realizes that that key will open up any lock that he can encounter in Doubting Castle. And sure enough, the key promise is able to open up all the doors. He's able to get out. The giant wakes up but can't catch him, and they're off to the races. What I think that story is perhaps trying to, to tell us behind all of those funny names is that it's possible for a Christian and hopeful to encounter all sorts of things in life, including despair and doubt and giants and and these sorts of things but it's the promises of God it's that hope that we have that we can trust God and his character and his word that there aren't any locks there aren't any castles there aren't any doors that can prevent us from following those who've fallen who, who, who have went on before in faith they've accomplished all of these things and we can accomplish whatever God is calling us to in faith as well